0: Praised be Jesus Christ, my name is Pater Edmund Waldstein, and I am a monk of Stift Heiligenkreuz, a Cistercian Abbey near Vienna, Austria. It is a great joy for me to have this opportunity to give a St. Agnes Quick Talk. I have heard that many of the first parishioners of St. Agnes came from my part of the world, from Austria and southern Germany. I've been asked to talk today about Catholic action. Catholic action is a term that was originally applied to efforts by lay Catholics towards the restoration of society in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Pope Leo XIII and Pope St. Pius X encouraged these efforts, but it was Pope Pius XI who really gave them an official organization and structure And so Catholic action came to refer to that official structure. It included movements for men, for women, for youth, for workers, for students, and so on. Now, in the church, there are different stations of life, each of these stations has its own mission. So we have monks and other religious who flee the world and seek to live already now the kind of life that all of us hope to live in heaven. Then we have the priests and bishops who are devoted to the explicit preaching of the Word of God, the offering of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and the celebration of the sacraments. But then we also have the lay people whose chief mission is the transformation of this world, the spreading of the Kingdom of Christ to all areas of society. The Second Vatican Council put it like this, and I quote now from Lumen Gentium, the Second Vatican Council's document on the Church, quote, The laity, by their very vocation, seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and by ordering them according to the plan of God. They live in the world, that is, in each and in all of the secular professions and occupations. They live in the ordinary circumstances of family and social life, from which the very web of their existence is woven. They are called there by God that by exercising their proper function and led by the spirit of the gospel, they may work for the sanctification of the world from within as a leaven. In this way, they may make Christ known to others, especially by the testimony of a life resplendent in faith, hope, and charity. Therefore, since they are t- tightly bound up in all types of temporal affairs, it is their special task to order and to throw light upon these affairs in such a way that they may come into being and then continually increase according to Christ to the praise of the Creator and the Redeemer. End quote. In his encyclical on Catholic action, Il Fermo Proposito, St. Pius X described this mission of the laity in terms of a conflict between Christian and anti-Christian civilization. And now a quote from St. Pius X. Since we particularly dwell on this last part of the desired restoration, you clearly see, venerable brethren, the services rendered to the Church by those chosen bands of Catholics who aim to unite all their forces in combating anti-Christian civilization by every just and lawful means. They use every means in repairing the serious disorders caused by it. They seek to restore Jesus Christ to the family, the school, and society by re-establishing the principle that human authority represents the authority of God take to heart the interests of the people, especially those of the working and agricultural classes, not only by inculcating in the hearts of everybody a true religious spirit, the only true fount of consolation among the troubles of this life, but also by endeavoring to dry their tears, to alleviate their sufferings, and to improve their economic condition by wise measures. They strive, in a word, to make public laws conformable to justice and amend or suppress those which are not so. Finally, they defend and support in a true Catholic spirit the rights of God in all things and the no less sacred rights of the Church. Here it might be helpful to ask, what does St. Pius X mean by anti-Christian civilization? He means... The anti-civilization that resulted from a number of revolutions that have taken place since the end of the Middle Ages. Medieval civilization was, for all its faults, an attempt at a Christian civilization, a civilization truly imbued and animated by the gospel. But the revolutions that followed it all undermined some elements of this Christian animation of society. And we have a number of revolutions since the Middle Ages, which we can think of as successive waves of revolution. Um, Of course, these revolutions are not sort of clearly separated from each other. They are um, sort of general tendencies that recur, but we can see high points at different uh, time periods. So it all begins Basically, with the Protestant Reformation, which we can think of as a revolution uh, in the religious sphere, first of all, a revolution against the authority of the Apostolic Church. The Reformation separates the interpretation of the Bible from Apostolic authority and Apostolic tradition, making the interpretation of the Bible. a matter of personal choice for each individual Christian. And of course, this the Protestant Reformation also has profound political imp- implications. The Protestant countries no longer recognize the spiritual authority of the Pope uh, and the indirect temporal authority that that spiritual authority gives the Pope. That is, the authority of the Pope to correct errant rulers to excommunicate and depose rulers, for example. In the 17th century, the next century, you get what we sometimes call the scientific revolution, which the scientific revolution can be thought of really as a separation of science from philosophical wisdom, a kind of reduction of science to uh, practical knowledge, knowledge that gives us power over nature, and therefore also a reduction uh, in our view of nature a reduc- uh, kind of seeing nature as nothing but matter in motion a kind of stripping uh, of nature of its of all its uh, intrinsic meaning that was given to it by its creator and this results in a separation between science and faith because science has been so reduced it's no longer able to really enter into dialogue with faith, or to recognize the authority of the faith. And therefore, this is also a revolution against divine authority. That is, it's a revolution against uh, authority in the area of thought. Now, in the 18th century, the end of the 18th century, really, and this carries on into the 19th century, we get what we can call the political revolution. Uh, most of all in France, the French Revolution is kind of the most violent and obvious manifestation of this political revolution. And the political revolution is really a rejection of the idea of political authority itself. That is, a rejection of the idea that it can be good and just for one person to rule over other persons for the sake of the common good. A rejection of the idea that authority is derived from God, political authority is derived from God, and therefore a rejection of the idea that obedience and submission can be good. And so you get this ideology of of freedom and equality in the political revolution, um, which in France results, of course, in the beheading of the king and of much of the nobility of France. And of course, this is also the strengthening of the separation of politics and uh, faith, separation of throne and altar that was that had already begun in the Protestant Reformation. So of course, the French Revolution also starts a violent persecution of the church in France, an attempt to, with the civil constitution of the clergy, to set up a kind of pseudo church in France uh, that ultimately fails. But you have here the Uh, origins of a strong anti-clerical, anti-Catholic movement among um, proponents of political revolution who in the next century in the 19th century will be called liberals. This liberal hatred of the church uh, is connected to the rejection of authority um, which demands the rejection of the authority of the church uh, and especially the superiority of the spiritual authority of the church to the temporal authority of rulers, which would be given expression in, uh, again, to, to use the same example, the right of the Pope to depose monarchs. So that is the political revolution. Then in the 19th century, you get uh, what we can call the economic revolution, the industrial revolution, as it's often called, which really involves a separation of economic life from the rest of human life, and especially a separation of economics from morality uh, and from religion and politics, so that economics is seen as kind of this neutral realm that has to be regulated according to its own rules uh, and ought not to be regulated according to the rules of morality uh, or the Catholic faith. And you probably know that Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical about this economic revolution, one of the most famous encyclicals of uh, all time, Rerum Novarum. Rerum Novarum, uh, the first line of which says that the, the lust for revolution has spread from the political to the economic sphere. Rerum Novarum. Literally translated, it means uh, new things, that is the desire of new things, but new things is a Latin idiom, a, um, an expression, which actually means revolution. So what uh, Leo Thirteenth there is saying is that what had begun uh, as a political revolution in France in the 18th century has now become an economic revolution. Finally, we come to the 20th century and carrying on into the 21st century, our own century, we have the sexual revolution. And you see the same kind of dynamic in the sexual revolution that we saw in the uh, religious revolution and the scientific revolution and the political and economic revolutions. There's um, a rejection of authority and a separation of different spheres. So in the sexual revolution, you have um, a rejection of uh, both of kind of the authority of of the church and of Christian morality in sexual affairs, and also a rejection within sexual relations of any idea of authority and obedience. Um, This is clearest, of course, in the feminist movement which sees any kind of authority in the family uh, as being tyrannical. Everything has to be equal. And you also see, of course, a separation of the various elements of uh, sexual life. Sexual life was meant by God to be an integrated whole in which the union and love of the spouses Um, creates a society in which children are brought into this world and in which they can be nurtured and educated in an atmosphere of trust and love. So the fidelity of the spouses, the faithful love of the spouses, is ordered to the building of a family, which is uh, truly a society of love. But in the sexual revolution, you have, of course, a separation of Uh, sexual pleasure from the ends of founding a family. Um, And so then you get various consequences of this. First, you have the um, legalization of divorce. This is kind of the first step in the sexual revolution, Um, a denial of the necessity of marital fidelity. Uh, And then, of course, you get contraception in the later part of the 20th century, especially, which separates the unitive and procreative uh, dimensions of sexual union. Um, and then as a consequence of that, you get the legalization of abortion for those cases where contraception fails. So you actually have the murder of the offspring of sexual union. Um, and then this uh, sort of destruction of the nature of sexual union then leads to the normaliza- normalization of various sexual perversions. Um, homosexuality and uh, and all the rest of it Uh, and now we have of course at the moment we have the transgender movement um, which sees uh, the sex of individual persons that is whether they're masculine or feminine as something basically uh, mutable so we have all these these revolutions uh, the protestant reformation the scientific revolution, the French revolution, the industrial revolution, the sexual revolution, and so on. And these are all eroding elements of Christian society and setting up a kind of anti-civilization. And the purpose of Catholic action is really for lay Catholics to restore all things in Christ, that is to re- to heal the wounds that have been caused by these revolutions, to uh, And to restore the true nature of the family and sexuality, of uh, economic activity, of political activity, of scientific and cultural activity, and ultimately to restore all things to the Catholic faith. That is to uh, bring everyone into the Catholic Church, thus undoing the Protestant Reformation. And I want to end here with another quote from Pope St. Pius X, who Uh, beautifully sums up the aspirations of Catholic action. Quote, The Church well knows that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Furthermore, she knows that she will be sorely afflicted, that her apostles are sent as lambs among wolves, that her followers will always bear the brunt of hatred and contempt, just as her divine founder received hatred and contempt. So the Church advances unafraid, spreading the kingdom of God wherever she preaches, and studying every possible means she can use in regaining the losses in the kingdom already conquered. To restore all things in Christ has always been the Church's motto, and it is especially our own during these fearful moments through which we are now passing. To restore all things, not in any haphazard fashion, but in Christ. And the Apostle adds, both those in the heavens and those on the earth. To restore all things in Christ includes not only what properly pertains to the divine mission of the Church, namely leading souls to God, but also what we have already explained as flowing from that divine mission, namely Christian civilization, in each and every one of the elements composing it.